right, guys, the last time we were here in our study of Genesis, we were dealing with God's uh, confirmation of his promise to Abram. And the issue that we were basically dealing with were basically twofold, where, where God was reiterating that promise to Abram. We dealt with the concept of salvation by righteousness. That was in Genesis chapter 15 and 6, where it says, Abram believed God and God counted that as righteousness. Now, if you didn't get a good understanding of that, I really hope that you would go back and look at the previous video that we made about concerning the first beginning sections of Genesis chapter 15. So that was the first issue that we dealt with, how that we dealt with the principle of salvation by faith. Or in other words, to say it right, we are saved because of God's grace. God has extended this to us. How has he, how has he done this thing? He has done this by way of giving a promise. And if we believe in whatever that specific promise of God is, the result of our faith is salvation. And that's where we get that principle again is saved by grace through faith. So if you didn't get a good understanding of that, I really urge you guys go back and look at that previous video. So we looked at that concerning Abram, which became the foundational principle for salvation by faith, talked about by the Apostle Paul, uh, the book of Romans chapter 4, even Galatians, even by James himself. But anyway, we talked about that in our last video, and we're dealing with the issue of God's confirmation to Abram as Abram returned from the battle of the kings and the, the despondency that's in his heart because the promise of God of Abram having a seed and even a multitude of people coming from him, that promise of God has not been fulfilled for the inheritance of the promised land. And so we see Abram is the little I won't use the word distraught. That's a little too strong of a term, but he is clearly saddened because that promise has not been fulfilled. And what God is doing is he is reconfirming that promise of Abram. And that promise that he is confirming of Abram is going to happen in a very specific way and in a unique way that will give us even more insights to exactly what the promise that God is making to Abram concerning. Remember, it is a promise not only of the seed, that's a continuation from Genesis 3 and 15, and onward, onward, right? That seed that brings redemption, that seed that brings deliverance, the seed that brings salvation, that ultimately, ultimately will be revealed in Jesus, the Messiah. Okay. But not only that, but also the stipulation that God tied to that is Genesis chapter 12 is a land. We know that would be the land of Israel. Sometimes even modern scholarship today, people call it Palestine, but according to scripture, it is not Palestine. It is the land of Israel also called land of promise, land of Canaan. Okay, so the whole point is this, with that stipulation of the seed, 
also comes the land of Canaan. And this is what God is going to confirm to Abram, the patriarch. And we are going to continue with that particular study in Genesis chapter 15. So the last thing that we left off was dealing with that whole issue of righteousness by faith. That was in Genesis 15 and 6. So without anything further, let's just continue to move on since we've already done our little review. Let's continue to move on in verses 7 to the end of chapter 15 as we look at some of the details involving how God confirms the covenant with Abram, what God actually does. And we be, let us also look at some of those principles. Exactly what do these things mean? And we'll try to look at that with a little more detail and specificity. Exactly what does that mean for Abram as well as for the descendants of Abram, that is Jewish people, even the Jewish people this day. And, and, and here's the thing that I want to say. The covenant that God made with Abram has never been abrogated. It has never been rescinded. It has never been broken. The covenant remains in effect unto this date. Number one. Number two, even though the law of Moses came 400 years later, and that's what the Apostle Paul talks about, how that a covenant that comes 400 years later, it does not annul, it doesn't, it doesn't uh, 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 take away the covenant that God made with Abram. It comes alongside of that covenant. It does not replace the covenant with Abram. Because, again, why am I pushing this issue? Because the covenant that God makes with Abram, Abraham, he also makes with his descendants as well. So the point is that covenant has not been rescinded. It is still in effect. So whatever covenant that God made with Abram, and you'll see that as we get into the text, hopefully we do pray, but it remains in effect. The law of Moses did not rescind it. And even the law of the Messiah, the law of Christ, that's what we're under now in the church age now. It didn't rescind it because God makes this covenant to Abram by virtue of a promise, a promise. And therefore, only God himself can rescind the covenant. OK, and then we also going to look at the nature of the covenant, the nature. What kind of covenant does God make with Abram? Now, I guess since I'm here, I'll give you a little insight on that. There are basically two types of covenant with respect to this issue, a conditional covenant and or an unconditional covenant. A conditional covenant says this. Whoever the participants in the covenant are, and we know it will be Abram or Abraham and God. A conditional covenant says this. There are stipulations that both or even all both participants will make. And therefore, both participants, it is necessary for them to be faithful to that covenant. If both participants, either or participants are unfaithful to the covenant, then the covenant can be broken. 
If so, therefore you got the, it is necessary. Both or all participants of the covenant to be faithful. They have to maintain, keep the stipulation of the covenant. If they fail to do so, it is broken. Or here's the second thing, an unconditional covenant. And that is the covenant that will be, will be made. And we'll see that when we get into the scriptures An unconditional covenant. In other words, it is the covenant that God will make alone. He does not bring Abraham into the covenant. There are no zero. There are zero stipulations, zero parts of the agreements, zero commandments. Abraham, as well as his descendants, the Jewish people, there is absolutely nothing for them to do. God never said, but now Abraham, you have to do this or Abraham, your people have has to do this. That's why we call it unconditional. Why? Because God makes the covenant based upon his faithfulness, who he is. And we know that our God is what he is a faithful God. Again, God is not a man that he should what lie. He has no need to do what repent. Repent means to change his mind. Okay. Has he not spoken? Will he not perform it? He will do all the things that he says he will do. So therefore the covenant that we will see that is made here, it is what is called an unconditional covenant. God makes it alone. So therefore only God is bound to keep the stipulations of the covenant, or in other words, the promises of the covenant. God is the only one who has to do what he says, the Jewish people or Abraham who represents himself and the Jewish people. They have nothing to do. God must keep all the words that he will promise. So with all of that, and we almost prematurely got into it, but you need to understand the nature of what is going on here. With all of that, let us continue to deal with the confirmation. Confirmation means now that God has said and made some statements and made some promises, God will sometimes reiterate those promises and confirm those promises by virtue of a particular action. What is that action? The making of a covenant. And that's what we're going to see in the remainder of verses seven through what? 21. God confirms the covenant. He states the stipulations of these covenants, covenant promises, and he makes that covenant by virtue of a blood covenant. Okay. And we'll talk about all of these things as we move along. So let's go. Verse number seven. So as we have dealt with Abraham, Abram, believing the promise of God, we continue. And he, that is God, said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. So once again, there's a reiteration of the action and the promise of God. And here's something else that you need to see, guys. As God makes this covenant with Abram, he makes the covenant with certain, the stipulation, the agreement in, in such a way that Abraham understands these, this covenant in accordance to the custom of his day. In other words, 
God is not necessarily doing some new thing. It's God making a covenant. Abraham said, well, I've never heard of a covenant being made this way. I've never heard of people doing an agreement between one another this way. Mm -mm. God uses the customs and the traditions of Abraham's day in order. So, so it says, Abraham, as I'm making this agreement, do you understand what I'm doing? Abraham said, yeah, I understand it. Why? Because we do things like this all the time. So since the, so in, this is why, this is what I, I didn't want to get into all of the details talking about the Sumerian and, and, and Mesopotamian ways of doing culture of, of cultural uh, 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 agreements during that time. So it was nothing new. This was customarily done in Abraham's time. So when God was speaking this way, he understood it. He understood exactly what God meant and what God was trying to do. Okay. So it was nothing new. So, and, and in saying that customarily, Whenever an agreement, a covenant was made between a superior and God here is the superior. He usually, he usually the superior introduces himself. He declares his name and he declares what he has done for the vassal. And that's what Abraham is. And I hope you guys understand that. The vassal would be the lesser one involved in the covenant. So, of course, God is going to be what? The greater person in the covenant. And Abraham would, Abram would be what? The lesser person in the covenant. So, therefore, God declares his name, his greatness, and God declares what he has done for the vassal, for the lesser one of the covenant, for Abraham. So, he says what? Again, in verse seven, I am Yahweh declaration of his name who brought you out of Ur of the Chal You didn't just leave the Ur of the Chaldeans. I brought you out another part of the ancient culture. The great one declares what he has done for the lesser one. And then he says, and why did I do that? To give you this land to possess it. Now, as we start getting it once again, reiteration, reconfirmation of the covenant agreement. And, and this will continually be done for the rest of the chapter. Okay. And this is what I've done. I brought you out of the land. So notice part of the covenant agreement, the stipulations to give you this land. And usually when such a covenant is made, it is like this. The greater one would say, this is what I will do. And then the expectation, what did I say? The expectation from the other members of the covenant. And this is what I expect you to do. I will keep my bargain, my part of the covenant, as long as you do what? Keep your part of the covenant. But that is what a conditional covenant is. That is what, what? A conditional covenant. As we will see, this covenant will be an unconditional because only one part will have stipulations and one party, one party will have things that only he is required to do. Nothing will be required of Abram. That's why this is an unconditional covenant that cannot be broken because only God can break the covenant and he has never rescinded this covenant. But anyway, so we see the agreement. We see 
the covenant being made to Abram in a manner that he himself clearly begins to understand it. Okay, so now verse number eight. So Abram said, he said, oh, Lord God. And here's a, a, a new way that Abram calls God's name, Adonai, Yahweh. Oh, Lord God, how may I know that I will possess it? Now, notice this is not, and I don't want to put a lot of time into this point. This is not Abraham's disbelief because we've already said, verse number six, what? Abram believed God. God counted that belief, faith, as righteousness. Abram is not asking. He's not asking because he does not believe. He is asking for a form of confirmation to confirm. I believe, Lord. Now give me something to confirm my faith, to confirm my belief. Okay. And that many times this, we can see this in the New Testament. Let me just give you guys a little wonderful little cue on that one. Many times with Jesus, notice the apostles, the really the 11, but the apostles of Jesus, they believed in Jesus's Messiahship. They believed in his claim to be the Messiah. But notice, for example, when Lazarus had died and Jesus did not immediately go to heal Lazarus, and Jesus said to the disciples, I'm glad that I was not there to the extent that you might believe. He was speaking to his disciples, to the apostles. I thought they were already believing Jesus. They followed Jesus because they did believe. Then why did Jesus say, I'm glad that I was not there so that you can believe? He was saying not that they didn't believe he was the Messiah. They did believe, but so that he could do that the miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead would confirm their belief. It would strengthen their faith. It would evidence their faith. Not only did you simply believe, now you can believe by what you have seen me do. You believe because you've also seen me do these things. It strengthened, it confirmed your faith. And that's what Abraham here is asking. It's the same concept and idea. Not that he doesn't believe it. And so he's asking God, well, how do I know? No, he's simply asking God, confirm my faith, strengthen, evidence it for me. And in making the covenant, that is exactly what God is going to do by what he does in the following. But anyway, now the so verse nine, God said, OK, you want to know you want the evidence of me. You want me to confirm your faith? He God said to him, bring me a three year old heifer, a three year old female goat and a three year old ram and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. Verse number 10. Let's just keep reading. I'll come back to it. Then he brought all these to him, to God, and he cut them in two, cut them in two and laid them half opposite the other. But he did not cut the birds. OK, let's deal with it. So God commanded him in his interesting, the animals that he told him to bring a heifer, female goat, a ram, turtle dove and pigeon. Now, this is not a good time for me to talk about these things at length, but it is interesting when we look at the book of Leviticus and we deal with all of the offerings that are dealt with in the animals that are to be used in the sacrificial offering relating to God and the people. 
Isn't it a wonderful and interesting thing? These are the very animals that are used in the sacrifices in the book of Leviticus that God uses even now to make the covenant with Abram. It, it is not a mistake. It is no doubt intentional by God and in the mind of God, even that such animals will be used in the future. But anyway, let's go on. I just wanted to bring that part to your attention. Now, what Abram is doing again, here's I guess I want you to see it. It is not something that is unique. It is not new. It is not novel. It was done many times. Abraham had seen it done. He, he, he even himself probably did it once before. You got it? So, and also too, another thing I need you to see concerning this particular covenant that God is making with Abram. He is making a blood covenant. Notice these animals have been brought by Abram. He cut them in two. When you cut the animal in two, it died. It spilled the blood. This was a formal declaration, a way to make a blood covenant. The idea of a blood covenant simply says this, whoever the participants that are involved in this covenant, it is a covenant of blood, which means they are bound to the covenant as long as they live. And if they should break the covenant, let them die. Notice they are bound. What? There are two principles you need to see. Bound as long as they live. Failure to keep the covenant means that the person who breaks the covenant will die. And since God, this is an unconditional covenant. Again, remember that. Since God is the only participant, God is the only one making the covenant. These things that what I just said must be applied to God. What? He is bound to the covenant. He is bound to this covenant as long as he lives. How long will God live? Forever. Forever. And God is bound by his own holy nature. What does it say about God? What does it say? If I should break the covenant, then let me die. It is impossible for God to break the covenant that is to lie. So therefore, this unconditional covenant remains intact, according, bound by the nature of God for two things. It is impossible for God to die. Number one, it is impossible for God to lie. That means to break the covenant. Number two. OK, so you have to understand the nature of the covenant. And once again, as he is making this covenant, that is, God is making it with Abram. He's commanding Abram to take these animals. Imagine a pathway, because that's what he's doing. He's creating a pathway. He takes, the, he takes the heifer, cut it in half, one on one side, one on the other side. He takes the goat, cut it in half, cut the piece, one on one side, one on. He's making a pathway for God to walk through this pathway so that God could come and as he walks through the pathway of blood, walking through the pathway of blood to recite the elements of the covenant. And that's what was going on. In other words, Abram was already used to men taking animals, splitting them in half, walking through 
walking through the pathway that has been created by these dead animals with the blood shed. And as you walk through the pathway, recite the stipulations, the elements, the, the, the whatever it is, the agreement, the stipulations of the covenant and the whole idea is this is what I will do. This is what I will do. And if I fail to do these things, let me die. And that's what Abraham, Abram, is preparing for God at this point. But anyway, enough of that. Let's go on. Uh, so he brought all of these animals. He, he set them opposite, but he did not cut the birds. Of course, the birds were too little. Verse number 11. And this no doubt happened during the daytime. A long period of time has will pass, as we'll see in these verses, a long period of time from day uneven until night. So a good deal of time has passed by. All right. So therefore, it gives enough time for uh, vultures or some whatever to come and try to eat and pick on these bodies that have been uh, of animals that Abraham has just cut in half. Verse number 11, and that's what's taking place. The birds of prey came down upon the carcass. Abram drove them away. So do you see the birds see all this stuff that Abram has laid down? Significant time has passed by that Abram has prepared this bloody pathway for God. And now other birds are coming trying to eat it up or whatever. Verse number 12. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. And behold, a terror and great darkness fell upon him. So now the sun, had, more time has come, darkness has come, and this deep sleep that's kind of similar. You'll see this same language used way back in the early part of Genesis when God allowed this deep sleep to come upon Adam right before he took part of his rib from him. We saw this deep visionary, and that's what you have to understand. It's not just a regular go to sleep, sleep, but it's a, a sleep and also a vision. Notice in the very first beginning of this chapter, the, the Lord God appeared to Abraham in a vision. So the same thing, a revelation of God is beginning to take place with Abram in this deep sleep. And so it is a strikingly thing. That's why I say it's terror and great dark. So whatever it is, it is spiritually, even metaphysically striking to Abram, whatever God is revealing to him. So now let's get into that revelation. God said to Abram, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. But I will judge, I will also judge the nation whom they will serve. And afterward, they will come out with many possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You will be buried at a good old age. Then in the fourth generation, they will return here for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. Now, I'm going to stop there. That is a mouthful. Let's just start to break it down. And, got, and I don't want to put a lot of time. Now, you can actually spend a great deal of time in exegeting, explaining these particular verses. But for time's sake, let me just give you the general gist of what's going on in each section. All right. So the revelation that God has now given Abram 
as he is falling into this deep sleep. Here's what God reveals to him. Your descendants will be strangers. So not only will you have a seed, remember, because that's what Abraham was saying to God. I have no seed. This one, this uh, Eliezer of Damascus, uh, you're going to have a seed. You will not only that, you'll have many descendants. And, but those descendants will go into a land that is not theirs. Remember, everything deals with Abram in the promised land. And God had promised Abram and those descendants the promised land. Now he is giving him further revelation to tell him that your descendants are going to actually leave the promised land. You're going to have many children. They're going to leave the promised land and their end is not going to be. Well, let me just simply say some of the things that's going to happen to them is not going to be good. Why? They will be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. Now. I believe that this is a general statement of God when he says enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. Later, you'll see certain places in the scripture say 430 years. OK, so I think this is God giving simply a roundabout expression, possibly so. And also, too, when he says enslaved for 400 years, it talks about the point, the point, guys, the mistreatment of the Jewish people will be for a period of 400 years. OK. Because why did I say that? I'm making a distinction between 430 years, as you'll see in other parts of the scripture. They were not always mistreated because why? when Joseph went down into the promised land initially and the family, that is the family of Jacob, went into the promised land. Initially, they were not mistreated. They were honored. Joseph was honored. They were given part of Goshen. It was later on in the process of time. They were mistreated by the Egyptians. When we find a new family of Egyptians, I believe it's, the, I think it will once again, it'd be the Hyksos that will replace uh, um, the Egyptians that were once the dynasty. Uh, I don't even supposed to be here right now. That's for the, when we get to the book of Exodus, but nevertheless, only thing I'm trying to teach you guys is this. God is getting a, a general overview. That would be a what? A mistreatment of Abraham's descendants because they are going to be, they are going to leave the land of Canaan. They're going to leave the promised land. And God is simply making Abram aware of what will befall himself and his people in the future. And so he's talking about the whole period of what? 400 years. And then he says in verse number 14, because we know that it will be the Egyptians who will enslave the Jewish people. He says that after that, the nation that they're serving, the Egyptian, he will bring, God will bring them out with many possessions. We already know that according to what is taught in the book of Exodus, that when the children of Israel came out from the Jewish, the Egyptian people, they asked to borrow of gold and silver and treasures from the Jewish people and the, and the and Egyptian, I'm sorry, the Egyptian people and the Egyptian people gave them whatever they wanted. They just wanted them out of there. And the Bible said they plundered the Egyptians and therefore fulfilling God's word when he says they will come out with great treasures. Okay. Many possessions. Verse 15. And then he says, but as for you, you won't suffer these things. You, You'll live a good old time. We know Abram died. Abraham died at the age of 175. You'll go to your grave in peace, right? And then he says, and it will be in that fourth generation 
uh, that your descendants will come out of. And we already know that place that they are being slaved, the land of Egypt. They'll come out in the fourth generation. The fourth generation simply means this. I'll spend a little time so you'll understand this point. The fourth generation means this. Remember, God said they'll be there for 400 years. Therefore, the fourth generation means that each generation is counted as 100 years. What did I say? Each generation here, here, here is counted as 100 years. So therefore, in the fourth generation, after 400 years, 100 years for, for a generation, 400 they come out like God has promised them and that God will bless them to have great substance. And then he says they come out and he says the sin of the Amorite is yet complete. They will come out. We know according to uh, when Moses came out, according to the workings of Joshua, they come out as an army that God uses to judge the Amorites, these are the peoples who will be in the land of promise, right? God comes out there. So, but let me deal with that issue of a generation. A lot of time there's a confusion about how long a generation. Sometimes you look at a generation in the Bible. Some people call it 40 years. Sometimes people won't even call it a time as long as 20 years. There is, so here's what I want to say. I don't want to spend any time on it. Just learn it now. Learn it now. According to scripture, there is no set number of years for a generation. A generation is not 40 years. Notice even here, a generation is what? A hundred years. A generation simply means those who are your contemporaries. It just simply means whatever the amount of time is that the people living with you, whatever that lifespan of time. So it is, it is no set time. A generation, according to scripture, is no set time. It simply means your contemporaries. It deals with the lifespan of how long people are living at the time that God is speaking to you. Right now, people ain't living real long time. You got it? Right now, people may live. If you live to be a good 80 years, that's a pretty good time. So a generation could be anywhere from 20 to 40 years. In Abraham's time, people lived to be a long time. Abraham himself lived to be how, lo how long? 175 years old. And so notice what God is called, a generation, 100 years. If you went back further than that, when people were living, remember, 600, 700 years old, can you imagine what a generation was then? Much longer. So a generation simply means your contemporaries. All right, now back to the text again, because time is, is moving on. He says, I bring your people back after what? 400 years. Here's a wonderful thing for the in for means because the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. Amorites. These are simply a general statement. Amorites for the peoples in the land. And we'll see a breakdown with respect to that list of peoples in the land at the end of this chapter, Canaanites, Hittites, Hivites, Girgashites, and all Amorites. So he just simply says the Amorites. It's a general statement. But here's the thing that I want to bring to your attention. The sin is not yet full, which means that when God does, after the 400-year period, bring 
Abraham's descendants, the Israelite people, and he brings them back as armies of God. We see that with Joshua fighting all these battles. Okay. He brings them back to judge the Amorites for their sins. Now, the reason why I'm pausing here is this many times. And let me say it as, as, as succinct as possible. When people look at the battles that, J that Joshua fought, and when we look at when in the old, people say in the Old Testament, God was mean in the Old Testament, and God killed these people, and he told the Jewish people to destroy these people, and he did this, and God was, he was awful in how he destroyed all of these people, and all of the killing we see, and God would say, kill all the males, and kill all the men. And it seems that God is somehow mean and, and what people want to say. They're not saying it, but what they're really trying to say is God is unrighteous. God is unrighteous. No, he is not. God, notice what we see. Merciful. You've heard me say it many times in, in these videos. He is merciful and long-suffering. How do you know? What has God given these people in the land to do? He has given them 400 years to come to repentance. Here's the thing. Did they not know that God is God? Yes. Abraham, when he came into the land, what did he do? He erected a public altar so that the people would know God is God. He, his life was a testimony. His words, what did he say to Sodom? I want you to know, I don't want nothing from you. I don't want nothing from your idols. He said, because Whatever I get, I will get from my God. His life was a testimony of God. What did God want him to be? A blessing to these people in the land. A blessing so that they will know what? Who the true God is. And here's my point. And throughout all of this time and throughout all of the testimony of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, through the testimony of all of these people. That's what the purpose of the Jewish people was. That was the purpose of why God called Abram. Throughout all of the testimony, declaring who God was, did they still receive God? Did they acknowledge God? And they knew it. Remember when God, when the children of Israel even came, the whole that's what Egypt was all about. The 10 plagues and notice even how God showed and demonstrated his power in Egypt so that the Egyptians would know there is only one God and all your gods who you call gods are not gods. And even then, did the Egyptians turn to God and repent? Answer, no. So therefore, God is right when he judges. And and that's the point that I'm trying to make. So I'm going to go on and on and on so that once you see the children of Israel, stop trying to say ugly things that you don't understand about God. When you see the children of Israel as armies come back and destroy the Canaanites completely, God gave them 400 years to repent after he has given so much witness 
to these nations, they still reject him. And notice he said, and, and, and look at the immorality that they do. That's Leviticus 18, Leviticus chapter 20, how mothers would sleep with their sons, how, how men slept with men and women slept with women. And, and God said, an abomination unto me. They continued in these things 400 years. And the patience of God endured this for just this long. So stop accusing God of being harsh and mean and critical when he sends the army. That's when the Bible says their judgment is due. Their judgment is due. So God is righteous whenever he says something, whenever he does something, whenever he acts in judgment, he is righteous. And whoever gets judged, they had it coming. They had it coming because they wouldn't hear time after time and time. Okay, enough preaching. But now you see the beauty of that statement. And God just simply makes it as a statement. But it's a powerful statement that teaches us the long suffering of God before he brings judgment. And what's new about that, guys, if you have been with me in the study of the book of Genesis, didn't you even see that from the beginning before the flood waters came upon the earth? Even God said it was a long time men rebelled. And even then, when Noah was building, how long did he build the boat? How long did he preach? A hundred and twenty years. And here's my question. And who got saved? Who listened? Who repented? The answer is nobody repented. Nobody got saved. Can you believe that? A hundred and twenty years of preaching and not one convert. No one didn't have a single convert. Only he and his family was on that boat when it was all said and done. Stop accusing God of being harsh. All right. Anyway, enough of that. So that's what God says. They will come out in the fourth generation after 400 years and they will be his instrument. That is the Jewish armies of judgment upon the peoples of the land. Now we now we're going to go into the literal part where God acts. So that is what we've been talking about now. Those are the stipulations of the covenant. In other words, God says, this is what I have to say about the covenant. And this is what I say that I will do. I allowed them to go into, that's the part of Revelation, go into the land, land of Egypt and be enslaved. But what? Bring them back to the promised land. Give them this particular promised land. That's what I'm going to do, right? That's the stipulations of the covenant. Remember those animal parts that are still out there. So you can imagine God perfunctorily, he walking through this is what I will do. This is what will be. And now we come to the ratification. If I don't keep my word, let me die. That part of the covenant is ratified when the participants walk through the bloody parts, walk through that bloody pathway that Abram created when he cut those animals in half. Right. So verse 17, it came about when the sun had set. See, it's dark. So therefore you can see it. It was very dark and behold, there appeared a smoking oven and the flaming torch with which passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying, no, no. See the, 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 the appearance of God. Now it makes the covenant reciting once again, stipulations to your descendants. 
I have given this land from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenite and the Kenazite and the Kadmonite and the Hittite and the Perizzite and the Raphaim and the Amorite and the Canaanite and the Gergesite and the Jebusite. Now, so let me go. Let's finish it. So now God literally ratifies, confirms the covenant by walking through the pieces, the bloody pieces, blood covenant, by walking through it and reciting the covenant promises, the stipulations of that agreement. And once again, guys, notice Abraham did not walk through the pieces. And since Abraham, and he recited no parts of this covenant. Therefore, it is what, guys? Unconditional. The only somebody who has to keep this agreement is God. And God, and remember, the covenant says what? Based upon the life of God. If I do not keep this covenant, let me die. Blood covenant. That's why it's in blood. It is impossible for God to die. And on the nature of God. God is not a man. He should lie. So if God is saying something, God is keeping it. So we see God alone makes the covenant. So in other words, he is promising to give this land to Abram and his descendants. The descendants of Abraham are the Jew, the Jewish people, the Jews who even live today. Another thing that I told you once again at the beginning of this video, and God has never rescinded this covenant. He has never said, okay, I changed my mind, or okay, this covenant is no longer. It is a covenant of promise that remains in effect to this day. So what is the point? Why am I hammering this? The land of Israel, by promise, unconditional promise of God, belongs to the Jewish people, even to this day. Israel is the land of the Jews. It ain't the palace, the people in Palestine. It is not their land. Why? God is the owner of the world. If he wanted to give the whole world to the Jews, that was his business too. But he gave them this piece of land. And that's why he talks about this particular, where does this begin? He says, notice, from the river of Egypt, that part of the lower part of the Nile, as far as the great river, the, the great river is simply the Euphrates River. He sets forth the boundaries for the promised land, for where he gives the children of Abraham, the Israelites, Jews today. This is their land. And God says, I give it to you by basis of a promise that I made. I don't lie and I will never die. And God has never rescinded the promise. It's their land. And that's what I want you guys to see too. But anyway, so let's finish. And so verse number 17 just simply says, God made his presence manifest. This is what we call the Shekinah glory of God. The what? Shekinah glory of God as a flame and Shekinah glory of God, we usually see that in some sense of light or a flame. But the whole point is, is usually a manifestation of light. And what did God do? He manifested his presence as light as he walked through these bloody pieces, reciting the covenant that he is making 
with Abraham, a one-sided, unconditional covenant, right? And then he just simply says that he will do what? Remove the, 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 the 10 Canaanite nations in the land. These nations who are now living in the land, that inheritance will be given, is promised to be given when Abraham's descendants come out of the land of Egypt 400 years later. That will be given to Abraham's descendants. All right, guys, thanks for joining me on that one. I know we got long on that one, but let's get ourselves ready as we move into chapter 16 as we see Abraham becoming a little impatient for God to fulfill it. <laughs> see you next time, guys. Have you subscribed yet? What are you waiting for? Subscribe.